it well to center field. Deion Sanders going back to the wall, and it is gone. Bo Jackson over. Thank you for tuning in to the FBAS podcast here on RTF Sports Network. If you're listening, it's Wednesday night at 9 p.m. We appreciate having you, or maybe you've downloaded or streamed the episode. I'm Wayne G. I'm here with Jesse and Sully. What's up, guys? Hello, hello, Sully. Hey, how we doing, boys? How we doing tonight? Appreciate the listen. We got a lot to get into today. Definitely, if you're listening to us on iTunes, rate, review, subscribe. If you're listening to us in any other format, whatever they have, I don't know if everybody else has like a five star thing, but give us five thumbs up or five penises, whatever they got. Five stars, 40 hot dogs. Definitely five penises. <laughs> All right, so breaking news. Obviously, today we weren't planning on getting to it, but Rob Gronkowski traded by the New England Patriots, said he wants to come out of retirement, go into the Buccaneers, Rob in a seventh for a fourth from Tampa Bay. Being a Bucks fan, curious to get Sully's take. I mean, I'm pretty excited. I don't want to get over the top here yet, you know, because I still want to see if he's in football shape. You know, he's still been out a long time. And he was kind of an injury risk before then. But I mean, God, the talent's there, the connection's there. Obviously, we wanted that for us. I think OJ Howard, this kind of seals the deal. It looks like he's out the door, definitely. And I mean, I'm thrilled. I found out just recently before we started the podcast that we traded pick 139, not pick 117. So it's it, that's even bigger, I think. That's pretty much a fifth rounder. So, I mean, I think that's huge for us. The 139 was a comp pick from the Quan Alexander loss. So to flip essentially Quan Alexander for Rob Gronkowski, I think is huge. I mean, I, I can't be more thrilled right now. I'm really excited for Tampa Bay in this season. At least from this Patriot fan perspective, I'm upset. I'm sick to my stomach that I'm going to see Brady DeGronk down in Tampa Bay. But to get a fourth-round pick for a guy that was retired, I think is huge. And I also want to mention that I think if the marijuana ban was still going on in the NFL, this guy wouldn't be doing what he's doing. But they obviously made a change in the offseason, and that allowed him to go ahead and make his interest known that he wanted to go ahead and continue playing with Tom. Yeah, as a Patriots fan, I wasn't too broken up because, honestly, I wasn't expecting him to play this year anyways. So as far as I'm concerned, he's not playing. I mean, I know he's playing somewhere else, but we don't face the Buccaneers this year unless it's in the Super Bowl. So, again, no, I'm not really hurt. don't really feel like I'm losing anything. Yeah, no, I agree. If I was a Patriots fan, I wouldn't feel too bent up because, you know, like you said, he wasn't on the team already. So it's not like you're losing any kind of equity or anything like that from your players. So it's not the worst deal, you know, and to get something for him is huge. You know, I, I really do think this is a trade where both sides, both teams end up pretty happy with the turnout. Gronk wanted to come back and, you know, you guys know of anybody, your salary cap's a, a huge issue there. And so to get $12 million essentially off the books, you know, since he came back is pretty big. You know, I know he never was on the books because he's retired, but if he wanted to come back, you guys couldn't keep him. So to get that money off the books is huge. And, you, you know, I think it's a beneficiary to both teams. 
Yeah, we were hurting in the cap, but we were also hurting in the draft pick area as well. So be able to add a fourth round pick when we didn't have a second round pick. It just gives Bill Belichick and that front office more assets to move around if they choose to. And I think everybody on this podcast feels that that's what Belichick's going to do with that first round pick and many more picks is do some moving around. Well, I know that the main focus of our show before all this happens, we talked about we're going to watch the... Michael Jordan special. I'd say the Michael Jordan special is probably unfair to the rest of the team. Bulls special, the last dance on ESPN. It chronicles that last season with the Chicago Bulls in the 97-98 season. I know this is Jesse's area of expertise as a huge, huge Michael Jordan fan, probably the Michael Jordan expert of the FBAS community. So I wanted him to kind of take the lead and let us right off the bat. What do you think of the series? You know, give us your take. It's an absolutely fun series to start to watch, to be able to see things that I never knew. You know, I do claim to be one of the biggest Michael Jordan fans there is, and I definitely saw many things that I never saw before. That's what the uh, fun thing about this whole documentary is, is to see things that none of us had access to see before. So it was very fun. Things that uh, I got to see, like the the practice, um, him talking trash and shit to other players, like Harper, him being in the locker room and taking jabs at Jerry Reinsdorf. It was absolutely great seeing some of the inside scoop that we had never had a vantage point of seeing before. Yeah, I mean, I was honestly so captivated. I couldn't put it down. I couldn't get away from it. It was amazing. I was honestly so insanely surprised at how explosive young Michael Jordan was and Michael Jordan in general. I mean, everybody talks about it. You see it and, you know, to go back and see these things again and see his start stop and just him just fly by guys was just amazing to see. I love the inner works of it, the really in-depth stuff, like, you know, the, the letter to his mother asking for stamps, I thought was honestly like one of the coolest things about the whole show. That gets real in-depth and personal into his life there and and I loved it I thought they did an incredible job I know I was going into it a little skeptical because I saw that it was gonna be about that last season and I thought I don't I don't really care about watching a thing about the last season I really just don't but the fact that they cut in so much of the old footage high school footage college footage talking about his past I think you needed that that's kind of what got me because I think if it was all just this season alone without going into details about the past, how the team was built, all that stuff, I don't think I would have been as interested in the one season, but I think they did a great job of kind of going back and forth between the past and how it you know, related today. Yeah, I think that one thing that they touched on that I definitely didn't expect at all was the salary cap implications. I know we're going to get more into it once we talk about episode two, but the fact that they spoke about it and how much that meant to that last season, the fact that Jerry wanted a rebuild with that Chicago Bulls organization. I had no idea about that. You know, I claimed to be a big Michael Jordan fan, but obviously not big enough to know inner workings like that. So this was so fascinating to watch and take in. You know, I was just trying to be the best sponge I could be just on my couch drooling at every aspect. We've all seen the memes about him walking into the hotel room and turning around because he saw some alcohol and some drugs. He saw the entire Chicago Bulls team do that. Another aspect I saw in there was the 1984 Olympics team, and I just never made the connection of how that opportunity for him and those other players really propelled them into stardom in that era when I think the NBA was thirsty for it after Magic and Larry. Them being able to be propelled worldwide for the Olympics was uh, an amazing uh, experience for them, and I think that actually helped propel Michael. Not that he didn't need any help propelling. That dude's got airtime for days. 
Yeah, I mean, it was honestly just a riveting series from start. To see a lot of the backstage stuff, like I thought the really funny thing was when the guy was micing him up and then asked for an autograph and Michael Jordan just looked at him like, man, who the fuck do you think you are right now asking me for an autograph? And then he turns over to his, like, whoever's assistant next to him was like, no, 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 you can't do that. That was one of the coolest things I think I've seen. I love to see that. I know it had nothing to do with the actual series, but just that kind of behind the scenes stuff is, is kind of what you live for when you're this deep into sports and you know these stories the way you do. The rebuild, I thought, was really something I also didn't know a ton about. I am struggling to figure out why they were so willing to just blow the whole thing up. And I get they want to rebuild, and I wish you could, like, you know, genuinely ask, but you could see that Jerry Krause clearly has an animosity that these guys were were getting bigger than he was. If Jerry Krause was a GM, you know, in today's game and had Michael and built it like this, I think he would have gotten the stardom he craved, and I think it would have been a totally different situation because I think GMs get a ton of praise now. You know, GMs get their due when they build the team and make it successful. And I think that's all really Jerry Krause wanted and he never got. He was like, you know, he just got made fun of and berated the whole time. And I thought that was an interesting aspect that I honestly never had any clue about. Yeah, I mean, RIP to Jerry Krause, but that guy sucks. I'll get into that in a few notes in, but I definitely don't think he sucked. I mean, maybe as a person he did, but like as a GM, the guy was obviously great. I mean, there's no denying that, I don't think. So I guess starting with episode one, I, I started taking some notes and I kind of went in order and I started writing them all down. And the, and the very first thing that jumped out to me in episode one, right off the bat, probably in the first two or three minutes of the episode, J.A. Adande is on there and he says, Scottie Pippen was the best number two player of all time. And immediately I said, nope, absolutely wrong, dead wrong, not even close. Um, I couldn't believe he said it. He's certainly up there. Who, who do you have in mind, Wayne? Uh, Kobe Bryant, off the top of my head. Ah, oh, God. Uh I mean, when I think he mentions number two, so the Kobe situation is, I think, special because I don't think there was a number two there. I think that's two number ones. And I don't think there was, you know, a number one and number one situation in Chicago. I think when he says number two, I think what he means is Scottie Pippen took on the Robin role and embraced it. Like, he took on the role that, okay, I'm going to let Michael run this show. This is his team. And I'm going to do all the little dirty work things that he doesn't do that this team kind of needs and be great around him. And I think that's kind of what a number two player is. I mean, I agree he's probably not the most talented second option on a team, you know, of, of one, two greats. You could name probably a ton that are better, but as a pure number two, and I mean like the role of a pure Robin, I think I'd struggle to find another one that's better than he is. I think if we're specifically talking the Batman-Robin role, you know, Stockton-Malone obviously comes one name after the other. You think of those guys having so many key times together, but obviously they never won a championship. But I do agree with Dan. I think that Pippen is the best Robin that the NBA has ever seen. I don't consider Kobe Shaq's Robin. If anything, I consider Shaq to be Kobe's Robin. Well, that's nuts, too. The guy was the finals MVP three times. Yeah, I mean, he he was amazing and undefensible in a smaller span of time. I'm not trying to take anything away from Shaq. I just think that Kobe was the leader of that team. What I was going to say is I think that Kobe is the closest thing we've ever seen to Michael Jordan. Yeah, and I understand what Dan's saying when he says, you know, the, and like what you're saying, the Batman-Robin thing, maybe Scottie Pippen's the best Robin of all time. Maybe with Shaq and Kobe, it was more like Superman and Batman in the Justice League. You know, they're kind of like equals, but they're just different. Yeah, exactly. Or if you want to get into not a terrible analogy because the Justice League is awful, you know, it's like Iron Man and Thor. 
because Marvel is the shit. It's two superheroes playing with each other, like D-Wade LeBron, you know, in Miami. I don't think there was a one-two there. Actually, there may have been. D-Wade may have been the best number two ever. Well, I also have Durant. Now that we think of it. See, that that Durant situation, I don't know. That's a little specific, but I think actually that now that we think about it, D-Wade might be up there with with him and LeBron. I think that one-two may be a really good punch, too. But, I mean, like those kind of guys, I think, are what you would consider number twos and not necessarily like... You know, like when you think about all, like the four Hall of Famers that were on the Celtics, you know what I mean? Like they had so many guys that it's not really a one and a two, you know, it's like just a ton of great guys on a team. Well, even to the point too, that I think that when I look at the Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan at the time, Michael Jordan's the best player in the NBA, Scottie Pippen, let's say he's top 10, top 15. I felt like with Shaq and Kobe, Shaq was the best player in the NBA. Kobe was the second best player in the NBA. So you had the top two players on the same team. Yeah, exactly. So that was my first note. Anyways, uh, Jesse, what was your first note? Oh, I mean, I, I did kind of touch on some of my notes there. I remember seeing Michael talking about the affection that James had, James being his father, the affection he had for Larry and how that kind of started to, I think, burn the competitive fire in Michael. I think that's where it started for him. He then carried it on into high school and college, you know, athletically. But that fire to always compete started with Larry, but first for his father's affection. So that was something, you know, I've read several books, but I never got that grain there, that detail, that that's where that fire started to burn for him. So that's something that, that I absolutely loved. But yeah, I mean, I, I did, you know, want to also just touch on the fact that, like Sully said, you know, we saw Michael publicly poking at Jerry, you know, hey, you're going to get up in the layup line, Jerry? And then, you know, after they won the trophy in 97 uh, over in France, in like the intramural tournament they had, he said, I don't give a shit what you do with that trophy, just don't give it to Jerry. So, I mean, seeing that that in detail of how much he, he really despised him, the tension there obviously was between Phil and Jerry and Michael and Jerry. And then, you know, what we'll talk about in the second episode between another player and Jerry, it was just insane. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that take about him and his older brother and that drive. You know, I'm a younger brother, and I can honestly say... I am as competitive as I am because of my older brother. I strive to be the best at things because of my older brother. It's not that my dad gave him more affection or anything like that, like in that sense, but you know, when you have an older brother and you see him excel, you want to excel at these things. You want to try and be better just naturally. And to see that so in depth from Michael too, I thought was just really cool. Your point about the Jerry Krause thing I thought was hilarious when you mentioned, hey, what pills are you taking to stay so short? I thought that was hilarious. That made me, that I was dying laughing from there. One of my biggest takeaways was how quickly Michael came into that team and immediately it was his team. And and I thought that's what really stood out to me. I think that's what makes the greats kind of the greats they are. You know, when you talk about the list of great players, they come into the league and and there's usually not a huge transition that usually they come in and they take over. And I thought that was really, really cool to see. Uh, Like, you know, they said, they mentioned the Bucks game where they were down nine in the fourth quarter. And he mentions that that's when the team was used to just mailing it in and taking a loss. And, you know, Mike's like, fuck that. Like, we're going to win this goddamn basketball game right here. And he brought them back and they won the game. And the quote they say is from that point, point on everyone on the team felt that this kid wasn't going to let us lose and I loved that quote like to have that trust in in a kid that was so young and so new I thought was just I mean transcending and it turned out to be and I think the only other time a team's I I think we've seen that is with LeBron James too and obviously we'll get into their similarities more but that was one thing that that really captivated me 
Yeah, I think to touch on that, Sully, I mean, we've seen Jordan kind of be exposed to larger crowds and immediately win them over. I think after his high school career, he went to some summer programs and he blew up in front of colleges. And that's when he got the opportunity to go to UNC. And we heard Roy Williams and his awesome dialect speaking about how, you know, it just took him a little bit of time. And after five days, he was like, yeah, this is one of the best players in the entire country. So he blows up like that. But it was just definitely reassuring for us younger folks to be able to see what he did, you know, his early days how quickly he jumped right in and made a difference and an impression on his veteran teammates Wayne as somebody who's a little bit older what was it like seeing you know him in his rookie year and uh, that transition from college to the NBA I witnessed it firsthand and I feel like it wasn't surprising looking back on it because of the fact of how athletic he was and how unathletic the rest of the league was it was no surprise that he came in and averaged 28 points per game as a rookie he should have. I mean, no, nobody could hold up with him. There, maybe in the league at the time that he played, there were two guys that had his athleticism, and that was maybe Clyde Drexler and Dominique Wilkins. And other than that, he was being guarded by guys a lot slower than him that couldn't jump as high as him. And so absolutely no surprise uh, seeing him dominate the way he did. Was Jordan uh, drunk during his interviews? I don't know. I thought his eyes looked kind of jaundiced. They were very yellow. Uh, I thought they were bloodshot red, man. He was either baked off the moon or he was drunk as a skunk. Yeah, if you look, you can see that his glass of liquor is constantly changing levels. So you know he's drinking throughout the show. But I heard an interview today on Dan Levitard with the gentleman who produced it and filmed it. And he they pressed him to see like how drunk Michael Jordan was. And, and he kind of wouldn't give it away, which I thought was really funny because I think Mike was pretty sauced up. That's a good thing because I think that when you're drunk, you tend to be a little bit more honest. Although I also feel like Michael's never been one to shy away from, you know, being honest with people. Yeah, he's a narcissist, so... Um, One of the last takes I had was the fact that Dean Smith actually urged Mike to go to the NBA prior to his scholarship being done. And that's certainly not something you see in this day and age. I'm on Twitter and you saw J.J. Watt actually make a huge comment about it. He said, you know, that's a guy I wish I could have played for. Obviously, Dean Smith is dead now, but, you know, RIP, he was a wonderful coach, a wonderful man. And uh, the fact that he urged his player to leave the league, he was like, hey, man, you're ready. You're going to go take that league over. So to have that support at the collegiate level is something you don't really see, at least behind the scenes where it matters. Well, I disagree with that a little bit because I think John Calipari is exactly that. I mean, he's the guy who tells his guys to go pro every year if they can. In fact, it goes all the way back to when he was at Memphis and they got Dewan Wagner in out of high school. He was like the top high school guy. And after his freshman year... Calipari said, if you don't go pro, I'm yanking your scholarship. Like, you're not coming back here. I'm not allowing it. How dare you compare Dean Smith to John Calipari? I mean, if you want to go further back, John Calipari started his shenanigans at UMass, but Dean Smith never padded his pockets. John Calipari has done nothing but pad his pockets. So he may support his players, but he's also supporting his bank account. Dean Smith, in the early 80s, was not doing what we're seeing John Calipari do during his dynasties. Well, the uh, next note that I really had, kind of going down the list, again, we're jumping around a lot uh, on my list because, like I said, I went in chronological order of the show. The thing was in the press conference in the very beginning when Michael was talking about how it was going to be their last season, he says, you know, we're entitled to defend the title until we lose it, which I thought was a kind of like a shot, like, don't break this team up. Like, let us keep trying to repeat until we lose and then do whatever you want. And yet I was like, well, you went and played baseball in the middle of a dynasty. Yeah, but I mean, that's a 
typical narcissist behavior. You know what I mean? I mean, if we're going to really get real with it, I mean, he's really kind of only thinking about himself in every situation. So, of course, that wouldn't come up to him when he mentions that. But, yeah, he really has no ground to say that when he dips off and leaves. But he'll claim it was some personal beef and blah, blah, blah. But then also when Scottie Pippen has a personal beef and doesn't want to take the surgery and stuff, you know, he's being selfish, you know. So, Michael's kind of a Michael guy and he's always been a Michael guy. And I think people kind of overlook his assholeness and smugness and things like that as just pure greatness and drive when it's really, you know, borderline sociopathic narcissism. But, you know, he's he's great and I don't hate the guy for it. He's never done anything bad. But I mean, like, let's be real. He left the NBA because it got boring and because his daddy got murdered. So I wouldn't say that's a small personal beef. Plus gambling. You know all about gambling, Sully. Yeah, but he still left because of personal reasons. And then he's going to call Scottie Pippen selfish because he takes his injury time for, you know, for his personal reasons, things like that. Essentially, my point is, you know, Michael didn't think about the team first and the dynasty and things like that. That was kind of my point. I agree his father getting murdered and things has an effect. That also, like you said, wasn't the sole reason. I mean, let's be real. He wanted to play a lot of golf. He wanted to play baseball. Like, he, he wanted to do a lot of things. And David Stern pushed him out. Take some time off because of gambling, bud. All right. I don't know if I believe that, but okay. <laughs> because we got already touched on it a little bit. Is Jerry Krause, they went into a whole thing about him, and I said, this guy was the architect of the team. He's the one that drafted Scottie Pippen. He drafted Horace Grant in the same draft. He's the one that signed Dennis Rodman. And I think the most underrated signing that people forget about is Ron Harper. So Ron Harper was probably, what, the fourth, fifth option on that team Ron Harper averaged 20 points per game for his career before his first season with the Bulls. This guy was a born scorer, and they brought him in just to be a defender. They said, hey, listen, we know you can score 20 points a game, but Michael's going to do that. Scotty's going to do that. We just want you to come in and take the toughest defense, you know, the defensive assignment, and then that way it frees them up to not waste energy on the offensive end of things. But Ron Harper might be the, one of the most underrated players uh, on that team, maybe in the, any team. Yeah, I mean, how many guys do that today? How many 20-point scorers get signed to a team and get told they're going to go play defense and actually go do it? I mean, you don't see things like that happen anymore. Like what we said earlier when Jesse said, you know, fuck Jerry Krause. For all of his shortcomings as haha, as a person and his personality and how he dealt with his, his players, the guy could build a great team. He knew how to build a team. He knew how to construct players specifically around Michael, which I thought was brilliant. I mean, we do a lot of drafts on FBAS, and a lot of the guys who do these drafts, they'll know the inside scoop on this. I get the first pick like every single NBA draft. So I've kind of become a little bit of a pro at building around MJ. And I mean, Jerry Krause does it so well. I mean, you need an athletic scorer on the wing. You need a dirty big. Like these things, and he built them tailor-made to win a championship with MJ. And I think he did a great job. Yeah, the fact that he did, um, you know, a general manager job in the MLB and then went to the owner of the Bulls and said, hey, let me go ahead and be the general manager of this organization as well. Let me show you I can succeed here. And, you know, for... I believe he was a scout. He wasn't even a general manager. He was a scout for the White Sox and then had the balls to go say, hey, let me general manage this team. I thought that was huge. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, continue with your point, but I thought that was actually a really cool thing. Well, I mean, just the fact that he has the flexibility to, you know, do what he does in in two different leagues, I mean, that shows his strength there. I may have taken some digs earlier, but that man constructed the championships that he did. You know, that that team gets a lot of credit, or Michael Jordan gets a ton of credit, but Jerry will never get the credit he deserves, but I don't think he'll ever get the credit he feels he deserves either. 
And I think that the problem, too, is that I think if you went into the series as a Michael Jordan fan, as a Bulls fan, you definitely came away thinking that Jerry Krause came across as a little bit weaselly and sleazy. But I honestly went into it because I'm not a Michael Jordan fan, and I don't hate him. I just, I'm not a fan. And I went into it, and I thought that he actually came across as the bad guy in the situation. I mean, if you work for somebody, and he did work for Jerry Krause. It wasn't the other way around. If you go to your job, and you pick on your boss, and you pick on him, and you pick on him, and then when it comes time to ask for your time off, like, hey, can I get Saturday off, boss? And he says, fuck off. Off, you can't go around telling everybody like hey that guy's a real jerk he wouldn't give me saturday off well dude you've been shitting on him for 10 years i don't know if i see a general manager as a boss of the players but i mean i, I get that i just i think jerry Krause was kind of a dick though in terms of just the personal side of, of a business now you know we see it a lot more in this day and age like especially you guys are patriots fans you guys know more than anybody there are zero personal feelings in that franchise and they go by dollars and cents and analytics and numbers and things like that and you know we we praise them for that now and you know that essentially was what Jerry Krause was doing back then and like you said we kind of villainized him for it and I don't know if he's truly the villain in that situation I don't know if there is a villain but they're trying to create a villain which I understand you know it sells and it it creates drama but I truly don't know if he actually is the villain in the situation or if he's just a businessman well, I mean, who has the controlling rights to The Last Dance? I think that'd be MJ, and he is going to go ahead and have his say, and he's going to make Jerry look as bad as he wants. And I think he did that in Face Jam in making Mr. Swackhammer kind of the clone of, of Jerry Reinsdorf, a small guy trying to build a team, thinks he knows what he's doing. I think, you know, I'm seeing connections to Space Jam as I was watching the first episode of The Last Dance. So I really enjoyed everything about it. You literally just blew my mind. For one, it's Jerry Krause, not Jerry Reinsdorf. But that is 100% true. Holy shit, I didn't think the short, little, pudgy guy, he is Jerry Krause in Space Jam. That is nuts. That's crazy. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, uh, again, if we were in like film study class, we're doing Space Jam. Uh, that's a great uh, connection. That is a great take, Jesse. Good shit. The next thing I had on my list, again, going down here, is obviously we get to the draft, right? The 84 draft. A lot of debate about this. We've talked about it on previous shows. And they mentioned, you know, Olajuwon was going number one. If the Bulls had the first pick, they were taking Olajuwon. Anybody has the first pick, that's who's going. There was no doubt about it. So you can't blame anyone for taking Olajuwon over Jordan. So really, it comes down to Sam Bowie. And like they said, the Trailblazers already had Clyde Drexler. So they're like, well, Michael Jordan is basically Clyde Drexler. Why are we going to get two Clyde Drexlers? We need a big guy. So I really don't fault the Blazers for taking Sam Bowie, who was the second best center in college that year. Yeah, I mean, going back and looking at how the teams were constructed, you can't blame them, but people are going to. It's easy to look at the draft position and not the way the teams were constructed and say, wow, how did you possibly not take Michael Jordan? And you think half the people that know about Michael Jordan know who Clyde Drexler is? I think us and and many of the folks inside FBAS know about these absolute fantastic shooting guards of of our generation uh, and and prior to that. But there's no reason you should be blaming the Trailblazers and and certainly no reason you should be talking about the Rockets making a a poor draft pick. I think that top three fell the way it should. And Bowie, you know, no fault to his own injuries took his career away. I mean, yeah, I guess. I mean, but thankfully, most teams don't draft in that archaic style anymore. If a situation like that happened nowadays where a talent like Michael Jordan was available and you already had a shooting guard, you still take that player nowadays. And I think teams have proven and analytics have proven that you take talent over need every time. That's what you should do. It's always going to work out better for you in the end to take talent over need. And I think obviously Portland would have been well-pressed to do that. But again, like Jesse mentioned, in that time, in that era, you built based off need. And also they mentioned it too. Michael Jordan wasn't seven foot. 
and seven footers are what were making the impact in the league then big tall guys who were physical are what was dominating the league we had never seen something like Michael Jordan's athleticism yet so nobody really believed in it so to get a guy like Sam Bowie you can't really fault Portland but you know in this day and age something like that would never happen again I don't think I also had it in here, we talked a little bit again earlier about the 1984 Olympics, and they talked about how that was Michael Jordan's kind of coming out party before he got to the NBA. I think they said, you know, thank God the Olympics didn't happen before the draft, and he went out and won the gold medal. But I think what was missing in there, one of the great stories I thought is in 1984, in preparation for the Olympics, the NBA put together nine scrimmages against NBA All-Stars with the U.S. Olympic team, which was made up, of course, of Mullen, uh, I think Malone, Jordan, Stockton. Uh, Barkley got left off because he was too fat. That's a true story. And they were like, hey, we want to put against the NBA All-Stars. And when I say that, I mean Magic, Bird, McHale, Drexler, Parrish, James Worthy. They said, we're going to put these teams up against our NBA All-Stars, toughen them up so when they go to the Olympics, it's going to be a lot easier. Well, Michael Jordan and the 84 Olympic team beat the NBA All-Stars nine times out of nine. Wow, I did not know that. That's a, that's an awesome nugget that they should have connected with you on. It would be nice to kind of see those full rosters stacked up against each other on paper just to kind of see who would have been guarding who and who would have had the advantages in that game or in that series of games. But But that's an awesome nugget, Wayne. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you mentioned James Worthy there, and uh, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention James Worthy's quote when he said, you know, I was better than him for a whole two weeks, and I thought that was really cool. But yeah, you know, I don't think a lot of NBA players were shocked when Michael kind of dominated like he did. I think it was more media fans and things like that, but that is a really cool, I had no idea about that, so that was really cool. And then the uh, the last note I have on episode one is uh, David Stern at the end of the episode saying that the Chicago Bulls were the number one team in sports. And he's probably right at the time. And to think about that franchise, like he said, starting off this, the show, that nobody knew who the Chicago Bulls were, that they even had a team. It's like that line in Major League when she says, here in Cleveland? I didn't know they still had a team. You know, and uh, to think that by the end of the episode, David Stern, the commissioner, saying this is the number one team out of the four major sports. Yeah, I mean, they certainly blew up having who many considered to be at that time or in his you know peak, the, the best athlete on the entire planet, the most popular athlete on the entire planet. So Chicago made their money. I mean, their intro song is renowned to this day. I still get goosebumps when I hear that pump up song. Their logo, whether it's uh, right side up or upside down, seems to make news every couple of years. So, I mean, just an awesome anecdote from David Stern, where I think that's our third RIP here. So uh, awesome nugget from him. Him, but uh, just a great first episode overall. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't know if I actually agree with him at the time. I know the NFL was massive and the, the Cowboys were coming off their kind of 90s run right then. So they may still have been the biggest team, I guess, in sports at the time. But I mean, Michael Jordan was definitely probably the biggest figure. And I mean, everything was just so electric at that time. So it really was cool. It was nice seeing David Stern. Like Jesse said, RIP. I, did, I, I actually really enjoyed him as a commissioner. So all right, so we are now talking about episode two. Episode one is over with. And again, kind of going in chronological order, the very first thing, opening scene pretty much, the thing that jumped out at me is they have Scottie Pippen, and he says, quote, I'm one of the best basketball players of all time. And the reason this stood out to me is because he is. And I think that he gets in Michael Jordan's shadow a lot, and people call him kind of like a sidekick. Like we just talked about him as Robin in the last episode. But Scottie Pippen is one of the greatest basketball players of all time. 
Yeah, I think his offense is certainly underrated for sure. Defensively, he's highly regarded. I think he's known as one of the best defenders in the NBA history, and uh, he certainly made his mark there. I do agree with you, Wayne. I think that being on the same team as arguably the greatest of all time, you certainly get overshadowed. But even in the times where, like you had mentioned, we had Jordan step away and go play baseball, Scotty did a wonderful job of carrying that team and pretty sure he came in uh, within the top three of winning MVP that year. So he's a fantastic player, underrated offensively for sure, but defensively an all-timer. Yeah, I'm actually a huge Scottie Pippen fan. I think we've actually mentioned before that I don't discount Michael for playing with Scottie and I don't discount LeBron for playing with greats and you know because I think everybody needs a great player next to him and you know I think Scotty to his personal detriment took on the role of that Robin to his Batman he could have easily been probably a 23-25 point scorer in the league things like that and and he did all the other little dirty things to make himself and make the team better and kind of put himself second and I think that was just huge you know, Kawhi Leonard, you know, comes to mind for guys in today's age. Think of Kawhi Leonard back on the Spurs. You know, he wasn't the number one guy for his first couple of years. He was just kind of the guy who d- who did everything and played that Robin role. And when he left, he excelled. You know, when Pippen left and went to Portland, he was a great player and, and got the time to shine. But yeah, I think Scottie Pippen is one of the most underrated players because everybody thinks he was just a, a secondary fiddle to Michael Jordan. And I do like Michael Jordan kind of giving him the props in the episode saying, you know, you shouldn't be able to say Michael Jordan without saying Scottie Pippen. And too, too many people, you know, get away with doing so. Um, and uh, I think that's very awesome of Mike to give Scotty that praise. And it was a great insight to their relationship. I think we hear Mike having some tension with some players in the past, but never having much tension with Scotty. So I think they had a tight relationship then, and he still holds him in high regard and hopes that fans and other players do so as well. Yeah, I thought that was the coolest moment of the second episode, personally. When Michael Jordan himself says it, he goes, you can't mention Michael Jordan without Scottie Pippen. I think that was, I mean, you can't get more respect towards a person. I mean, I think that was huge, and I 100% agree with it. And it's not taking anything away from Michael Jordan. I think more what they should say is you can't mention the Bulls and the greatness of the Bulls without Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. Like, you can't just mention just Michael Jordan. I don't think anything takes Michael Jordan's greatness away. Mentioning Scottie Pippen, it's just those two together were just perfect for each other. Literally perfect for each other and perfect for that city, perfect for that franchise. And, and I mean, we saw what happened, you know? I mean, the dynasty speaks for itself. Yeah, I think it's unfair to call them the, you know, Jordan and the Jordanettes. That's very unfair. The next thing that I think they went into uh, with Scottie Pippen was they talked about the salary, which was he was sixth in salary on the Bulls in the 98 season. He was 122nd in the NBA. But I think that they do also a little bit paint a picture, even if it's not a good one, of the fact that in 1991, he did sign that seven-year, $18 million uh, contract, which is two and a half annual value, which at the time was the eighth highest paid player in the NBA. He was making more than Magic. He was making more than Malone, Dominique Wilkins, Stockton. The problem was that over that seven years, the NBA blew up. And over that seven-year period, salaries tripled and his stayed the same. Yeah, I think Jerry really pushed him into that decision. And I don't think Scotty really hesitated when you think of his family situation. The fact that he's got two people at home in wheelchairs already before he even started in the league between having a brother and his father both in wheelchairs. This guy felt a need for getting that payday and assisting his family. And I think that Jerry um, used that to his advantage. He kind of made him feel like he needed this money. He needed to take that deal right away. 
And I don't think that Scotty really benefited from the success that he was really a part of. Like we just mentioned, you can't have the success that the Bulls had without him. So the fact that he didn't really get to you know, see the return on his own investment is sad in the long run. And looking back at the Bulls team of the, that decade and the success they had, I had no idea that salary had to come up at all. And the fact that he was paid so insignificantly compared to his team and the rest of the entire league. Yeah, I mean, like you mentioned, Wayne, I mean, when he signed the deal, it was a great deal. And I think one of the quotes that reigned biggest to me is when Scottie Pippen himself says, I wasn't willing to gamble on myself. And he mentions that and he says, I had to take care of my family. And I couldn't believe it. That shocked me more than anything. A prime athlete like that who has to have the utmost confidence to to perform in those kind of situations, to not have the confidence to bet on himself and to gamble on himself like that. I couldn't believe. I was pure shocked. I, I honestly didn't know what to do at that point. And then I understand the situation of having the two family members in the wheelchair and having to take care of the family. I loved how Jerry Reinsdorf presented the fact that he didn't think it was a good deal for him to sign, how he thought he shouldn't sign for the seven years. I think owners are smart individuals. They know when their league's about to blow up, and he probably knew it was about to blow up. And I don't know if Jerry Krause took advantage of the situation. I think Scotty was just willing to sign whatever deal he could to take care of his family, and he ended up regretting it. And I think he ended up villainizing Jerry Krause for it just because he needed someone to blame, and it's it's so hard to blame yourself in that kind of situation. When, to be completely honest and to be blunt about it, he was the one to fucking blame. He was the dumbass who signed a seven-year deal when he should have signed a three-year or four-year deal, and then he could have been making ends upon ends of more money. So that was my take from that situation. You know, his famous nickname does make sense now when you think about it. You know, no tip and pippin. The fact that he didn't really make his money during the heyday when the Bulls were really becoming, you know, world-renowned. That's probably why he pockets more than he should. Not not saying he's right for it, but it, it kind of makes sense now that watching this episode. Well, I like that Jerry Reinsdorf did tell him, like, don't take this deal. Like, Not even like, I wouldn't recommend you do it. He's like, I'm telling you right now, do not take this deal. This is not a good deal for you. And he took it anyways. And Jerry Reinsdorf's policy was, once you sign a contract, I will not talk to you about your contract until it's over. And even MJ knew that because MJ didn't negotiate. He never renegotiated his contract. He would wait until his contract was up and then he would negotiate. And he knew that's how Jerry did it. And to think that Pippen was like, well, I'm better than MJ maybe. I don't want to say he was thinking that, but like, I'm going to be able to renegotiate my contract, even though that's not what Jerry Reinsdorf does. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily what he was thinking. I just, I can't get my mind into his mindset. Like I try to kind of get there and think about what he was thinking at the time. And and he was probably a young kid struggling and wanted that money. But at the same time, I keep coming back to he wasn't willing to gamble on himself. And that just is such a deeper issue, I think. You know what I mean? That I don't think they did enough prodding to and things like that. But yeah, it was just, it was fascinating to watch. The uh, next thing I have on my notes here, I was fascinated to learn that when he started at Central Arkansas, he was the equipment manager. He wasn't even like a scholarship player. Yeah, I mean, you know, he was the NBA's version of Rudy, if you kind of think about it, how he worked his way onto that team. And, you know, the fact that he really just was so persistent and you know he really pushed and pushed to get his opportunity some things fell his way one of the things that certainly fell his way during his time at central arkansas was his growth spurt i remember seeing that in 18 months he had grown a total of seven inches and so he'd gone from more of a a guard to a forward so i'm sure that really helped out his development uh, both collegiately and professionally 
Yeah, most definitely. That was nuts to find out he was a uh, he was an equipment manager. I had no clue. And then the gross part, my my girlfriend was actually sitting next to me hearing the episode, not watching it, and she goes, "People really grow that fast that quickly." And I go, "NBA people grow that fast that quickly." And told her to look up Anthony Davis and his growth spurt, things like that. And you know that's just amazing, and you know good for him. And I think it really can kind of help a player when you start small and then get really big. You know, I think that is obviously a clear benefit that we've seen for a lot of players but definitely I mean to see him start from the equipment manager and work his way up earn that scholarship I think honestly makes him the player who he is it, it turns him into the player that is always working for something and striving to be the best and not just settling and that I think is is who Scottie Pippen was his whole career and what I think is funny is when Jesse said he's kind of like the NBA's version of Rudy, I was like, yeah, if at the end of the movie Rudy, he was Lawrence Taylor. Yeah, for sure. I don't know if I'd like him to Lawrence Taylor, you know. Same idea. Yeah. I mean, Rudy, Rudy was still a bench player, even though he got into the game once, yeah. Fair statement. So he's drafted by Seattle, and he's drafted sixth overall. The Bulls ended up trading number eight. They had the eighth pick overall. They trade up to six to get Scotty, and they traded Olden Polonis, is who the uh, Sonics wanted. So good for them. They got who? Him. Who was that way? Yeah. yeah. And then the Bulls picked again at 10, and they took Horace Grant. So what a great draft for them to get Scotty Pippen and Horace Grant in the same draft. Yeah, I mean, to be totally uh, upfront with you guys, I had no idea that he wasn't drafted by the Bulls himself. So to find out that he was drafted by Seattle and to see the perspective of draft night, him wearing the Supersonics cap and uh, being interviewed that night, he had no idea that a, a trade had even happened. So to see his realism in the moment was pretty awesome, but it would have been uh, pretty crazy to not imagine him on the Bulls and instead imagine him playing in Seattle. So that was an awesome piece that I, again, I didn't know that he didn't start his entire career with the Bulls, you know, including draft night. Yeah, I mean, to get both those players in the same draft again, just kudos to Jerry Krause. I mean, that's such an underrated move and such an underrated draft. And to be able to pull off those moves you know, and, and get those players again who were perfect compliments to Michael Jordan and are exactly what Michael Jordan needs to have to succeed around him is just great team building and just great GMing. I mean, again, kudos to Jerry Krause. And I don't think it would be an FBAS podcast if I didn't take this dig, which is it's almost as good as the draft where the Celtics get Len Bias in round one and Reggie Lewis in round two. <laughs> you can't help but shout to Len Bias every time we mention a draft. Yeah, what a savage. (laughs) Speaking of savage, did you guys see them call Barack Obama former Chicago resident Barack Obama? They're not lying. I just think it's savage to call him out like that. Yeah, how long was he a Chicago resident for? Like eight years? I don't know. I know he talks about like, oh, I couldn't afford Bulls tickets when I was younger. I'm like, how long were you in Hawaii for? I mean, I, I don't know his autobiography, so I don't really know how long he was there for. Either do I. I just, I thought it was a, a pretty big dig. They couldn't just say Chicago resident to him. Like they had to call him out like that. It was fantastic. He's not trying to take any shine away from the actual team. So I think that's very kind and humble of uh, Mr. Obama. The thing I had here was obviously then, you know, Scotty is going through the contract thing. He gets hurt. He decides, I'm not going to have the surgery, and his reasoning was, I don't want to waste my summer, so I want to have fun this summer, and then I'll have surgery when the season starts. And seeing Michael Jordan, we talked about Jordan giving him props earlier, but then Jordan coming out and saying Scotty was absolutely wrong for doing that. 
Yeah, I had mentioned this before, you know, about Jordan and, and kind of, I think, his narcissistic tendencies. And this is what I mean. You know, Scotty's doing something that's best for Scotty and what he feels is best for Scotty. And the moment it's not what's best for Jordan, it's the player's selfish and it's wrong and he did something that isn't the best for the team. But you got to think if it's on the other foot and it's Jordan, you know, he probably would have done what was best for Jordan and things like that. So. I can't really knock Scotty for that. I probably would have done the same thing, especially considering their personal situation they had with him and Jerry Krause and the ownership in general. So I don't really blame him for it. You know, heal up, do your thing, come back and, and play in the playoffs. Now they just call it load management. You know what I mean? So... Yeah, I've got two notes on that. The first one being, Sully, so you actually mentioned, you know, if the shoe was on the other foot, I think foot was a nice term to use there because I think Jordan's a little bitter because of how he handled his foot injury and that kind of changed how his contract was structured in the future there with, you know, the for the love of the game clause he had in there where he lost, you know, almost his entire second year in the NBA because of a foot injury and they being the organization, held him back and didn't want him to come back any earlier than he really, really wanted to. The second part that I wanted to bring up regarding that was, I know that we've brought up Wayne being a Lakers fan. I think that the line that Shaq is pretty famous for during his injury was, I got injured on company time. I'm going to go ahead and rehab on company time. So I thought that was funny seeing Scotty's version of it years prior where he was like, no, man, I'm not wasting my summer. I'm going to go ahead and have fun and I'm going to go ahead and heal up when uh, you guys are playing. Yeah, I see Jordan's side of it too, and I know it is somewhat narcissistic because I do think that Jordan does what's best for Jordan, but I also think that what Jordan thinks is best for Jordan is winning basketball games. Jordan hates to lose, and I think that he felt that what Scotty was doing was making it harder for the team to win, and while that may have been against Jordan's best interests of trying to win, I think it really is thinking of the team abstractly. I mean, I I agree. I do think that in this condensed situation Jordan especially with injuries I think would press to get on the court as quickly as possible at the same time like do we really think he'd give up his summer of golf to do surgery or do you think he'd schedule the surgery closer to the season things like that I mean I know it's a lot of what ifs and things but I mean you know everybody's got their reasons and Scotty's entitled to do what Scotty wants to do and I got no beef with him for it personally Well, that led into, and I know Jesse touched on it, the broken foot with Michael Jordan. That was the next segment of the episode two, where they limited him to seven minutes a game when he came back. And the thing that blew my mind was that game where there's 30 seconds left. And they're like, no, your time's up. And they took him out of the game with 30 seconds left with a two-point game. Yeah, see, I think the organization kind of played puppet master with him a little bit. And that's where, you know, I I kind of feel to some extent that Jordan is a a little bitter about how Scotty was handling it or, you know, because the organization had handled it differently than he wanted to. I don't think he's ever going to see it perfectly. I do agree with you, even as a huge Jordan fan, the guy was certainly a think for himselfer. But I think that drive is certainly what got him to be known as the greatest of all time. Yeah, I thought that was crazy too, the 30 seconds. If we think back and, and if they don't actually make the playoffs in that instance, we don't get the 63-point Boston Garden game. We don't get the 50-point Boston Garden game before that. You know, we don't get those great games if they don't come back and win that game and end up actually making the playoffs. And to think that the franchise was that dug in and that stubborn to lose the game over 30 seconds of game time, it just blows my mind. I, 
I'm honestly surprised that the relationship was mended after that point. I know, like, if it's me personally or, you know, just from how I can see Michael Jordan as a competitor, that would have steamed me up to the point where I would I would never trust my GM and my franchise again. You're telling me that you would rather lose and get a better draft pick than win this game and get into the playoffs? Like, that would drive me absolutely insane, and I understand why it drove Michael insane. It was incredible to watch. Dan, you mentioned those playoff performances, and if we didn't get a chance to see those, then we wouldn't have gotten a chance to have Larry Bird's famous quote, you know, that's not Michael Jordan, that's God dressed as Michael Jordan. Yeah, I mean, that was such a great watch. That right there, I hadn't seen a ton of it. You know, I'd seen some, and I've heard of the legendary 63, obviously, but to see all that and watch it, I mean... Wayne had touched light to it earlier. He's just a different athletic freak. I mean, those guys were Hall of Famers, some of the greatest we've ever seen play the game, and he made them look absolutely silly. I mean, silly, like bad out there. Just his stop, go, his stutter, his get into the lane, and then just shoot over and score guys. It was just so impressive to see and just watch. I was so taken back by it. It was amazing. I thought it was funny that he said the quote in the show. They had him you know, sitting in the chair saying the quote. And I know he had said it. I think they quoted him in the newspaper for saying it. Maybe that's why they didn't have footage of him saying it back in whatever, 85, 86, what, 86, I think. But yeah, he did say it back then. And I thought it was just funny to see, see him say it in that interview setting. Like, you know, the guy interviewing him just prodded him was like, hey, Larry, can you say the, the quote? <laughs> Do the roar. Whether he's prodded or not, I mean, to have a current fixture in the NBA of Larry Bird's stature to go ahead and mount, you know, Michael Jordan like that, I mean, it got in writing. I mean, he could have said it off record. He could have chosen to not say it. But a guy like Larry Bird, who was already cemented as, you know, a megastar, went ahead and vaulted Michael Jordan higher with that quote. And um, obviously it helped Michael Jordan just continue to climb and climb. I think it was interesting that Common was a ball boy for the Bulls. Couldn't even get that onto the actual documentary. It was a commercial bit. <laughs> but I thought that was wicked cool. And I thought it was funny that he tried to forge the signature for the, the other kid. Yeah, that was definitely really cool. I thought it was a good bit. And just to interlight as to why they did those kind of commercial bits, again, I was not to plug another podcast. So I was watching a different podcast on ESPN, and they had the producer on. And the way these shows are set up is with the commercial time hour long, it's exactly 50 minutes. So you can't go under 50 minutes. You can't go over 50 minutes. It has to be exactly 50 minutes long. So the cutting and editing, I know Wayne has to know, it's, it's got to be extremely difficult figuring out what to put in and what to leave out. So I loved the little commercial nuggets. And to get to see comment in there about how he was faking autographs and stuff like that, that's really cool. Everybody wanted a piece of that dynasty. So it was definitely fun to see every little commercial bit and part of episode one and two in the documentary. Did you guys end up seeing who uh, Scotty had said his favorite player growing up was? It actually surprised me, but it was neat to see who a guy of that stature was saying, hey, this is a guy I idolized. It was Dr. J, wasn't it? Absolutely, yep. The J-man himself. I mean, all those guys grew up idolizing, uh, Michael Jordan grew up idolizing Dr. J. I mean, it was just the the players that were Scotty and Michael's age, that, that was their figure. That was their Jordan. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. It's just, it's nice to hear them talk about it and say, you know, this is why, this is who I grew up watching. This is who I wanted to be like. And for those guys to kind of be brought up in our FBAS drafts, you know, honestly, you'll see guys like Pip and Go before guys like Dr. J. So it's just, it's neat to kind of see the hierarchy like that. Well, I think that's just because Dr. J's play style is archaic and doesn't fit in today's basketball game. I think that's more why you don't see Dr. J. I don't think it's any knock on his greatness. I think it's more he he can't shoot the three because he didn't have a three, you know, and things like that. And in today's game, that's just not what we do. 
to touch on your point about them idolizing, you know, it makes a ton of sense and it doesn't surprise me because Scotty's game is kind of built on that athletic game. Now, granted, not to that extent and, and things like that, but I mean, the the Scotty Pippen highlights where he's rising up and dunking on people and playing that defense were, were just as crazy to see. I mean, everybody forgets, like Wayne had mentioned, that he's a, arguably a top 25 NBA player of all time. So, I mean, it's it was, it was a lot of fun. The last thing I had on episode two was at the very end when Magic Johnson said, you know, we all knew, I knew, Larry knew, we all knew that Michael was going to be great and was going to win championships. He just needed the right horses around him. And to me, that stood out because, and not to really get too much into the whole LeBron versus Jordan debate, but obviously you got the people who really hate LeBron James, and they will crap on him for trying to get better teammates, but Jordan couldn't win without great teammates. Neither could LeBron. They're both great players, and they both needed great teammates to win. Yeah, I mean, I'll regurgitate it till the day I die. Everybody needs a great teammate. You probably need two. And then beyond that, you need role players, and then you need bench players. That's why it's a team. You know, yes, obviously it helps to have a pure-blooded superstar, and it helps if you got a couple of them, but nobody's won it on their own. There's not a single NBA championship on this planet that's been won with one guy against five. There there just isn't one. You're never going to find it. So I'll never understand the knock. I'll never get it. Magic didn't win a title by himself. You know, none of the greats did. Wilt didn't win a title by himself. Kareem didn't win a title by himself. None of them did. So I hate the argument. And again, I've said this before. If that's your argument, I don't think you have a good sports opinion. And and I immediately devaluize you and don't worry about what you have to say. I do like the way that they're setting up these episodes, I think, during and after the first episode. You're like, oh my god, is this going to be 10 episodes of Jordan? Which I think we would all still take, especially now, while we're limited to house quarantine. But the fact that, you know, episode one, deep dive on Jordan, and also back and forth of his history, and then that season. And then episode two, deep dive onto Scottie Pippen. I don't know if you guys actually stayed up for after it, but Scott Van Pelt dove a little bit into what episode three was, and that's Dennis Rodman. So I like how they're kind of staggering going into the personalities of that team and their perspectives and roles in it, how they started. So that's going to be very awesome to continue to watch. And I'll say this, that I think that sometimes, you know, you go to a concert to see a particular singer and the opening act ends up blowing you away, right? And you're like, man, that's the whole reason to go see this concert is to see that guy. You tell your friends that. Well, everyone's tuning in this to see Michael Jordan. That's why everyone wants to see it. The Dennis Rodman episode is going to be better than the first two. I mean, to be frank, I learned more and I took more from the second episode than I did the first. I think Dennis Robin has certainly been more polarizing, so I don't know if I'll learn more. I'll certainly still enjoy it, but Pippen, for being kind of a quiet guy, I learned a lot about his role on that team, the financial aspects of why he was on his way out, why Phil Jackson was on his way out. I learned a lot more in episode two than I felt I did in episode one. Not saying I didn't get nuggets from episode one, but two was more fruitful in my opinion. So I would certainly expect that with seven more episodes to go, this is going to be amazing to just continue to soak in. Yeah, definitely. I can't wait to see three and four. They're going to be amazing. I really like how they're breaking it down and getting to every aspect of the team. And when we were talking about the lead up to this, that's what I was really looking forward to the most and was excited to see is all the little intricate details of it. So I'm just really, really excited to see where this continues to go. Yeah, continue to give me all the practice footage and locker room footage you can. Those are my favorite parts. Those are my little bits that I'll continue to just drool over. That that stuff where he's jabbing teammates and teammates are coming at him when he's in the locker room talking with people, when you can see the seriousness on his face and other players' faces. 
that stuff is just so impactful to a fan like me that is so enamored by Jordan and that era of basketball. So that's pretty much a recap of the two episodes, and I really just had to, I mean, at this point, kind of get into a little bit of NBA news, and then we have like a top five to get to. The NBA news I really want to jump into was Jalen Green, the number one high school player in the country, choosing to go play in the G League or the developmental league that they have going on, and just how amazing that he's the number one prospect in all of basketball, and he's going, instead of going to college, he's saying F the NCAA, which I say on a daily basis, and he's going to play in an NBA developmental league. Yeah, the floodgates are officially fucking open. Yeah, I mean, guys like him, other players who are going and playing over in Australia, we're seeing players just start to open their hand out and say, hey, I'm not going to play for free anymore. So it was an awesome to see a guy go to the G League to see certain players who are going to be high prospects and NBA players soon go over and take their talents across seas and play in other leagues to prep themselves a la Brandon Knight. I believe it was back in the day he went and played overseas before coming and jumping into the NBA. So it's always nice to see the NCAA lose more money. Right now, they are losing so much money between their NCAA basketball, NCAA football. I mean, they are hurting with this quarantine, and it hurts more when uh, a top prospect can give you the big middle finger. Sully, what's your take on this guy? Yeah, I mean, I think this is absolutely massive, like Wayne said. I mean, I think it opens the fucking floodgates. I think it really does. It's not the number 20 prospect. It's not the number 10 prospect. It's not even LaMelo Ball, who is a huge name, but wasn't really highly regarded coming into college. But, I mean, now we see him as a top NBA prospect. No, this is the number one prospect in the motherfucking country right now, has chosen to not go to college, say, fuck you, NCAA, and go worry about his future in the NBA. And I think that cannot be understated. I think it's going to have a huge, huge ripple effect around the league in general. I think a lot of kids are going to see this, especially. I mean, a lot hinders on how great he does. But, I mean, if this kid comes out and ends up being a top five pick or top ten pick again, or however it works in the G League, I'm not even sure how it works. If he ends up and becomes a success story, we will see every single solitary NCAA candidate skipping college and doing this because it's the smarter decision. Yeah, Wayne, I'm pretty confident in saying that you've played more basketball than either Sully or myself. So as a guy who's played more basketball, what is this guy going to get between not going and getting a year of collegiate basketball and instead going to go ahead and play against guys that are already in the G League? How more advanced is this going to be? How different is this going to be for him in your opinion? It's going to be a little bit different. I think the big thing, he's going to get less exposure because you would get more exposure going and playing the NCAA, the top program, if he was going to Duke or Kansas or North Carolina, which he most likely would. He'd get more exposure than he would going to the G League, which doesn't really have televised games. But that said, he's going to be playing against grown men, men who are fighting for a living. And he's going to get pushed around by grown men. And that's the biggest thing that I can say about these kids that go and play professionally is you're not playing against other kids. You're not playing against other AAU All-Stars. You're playing against men. And men, even though they may be less talented than you, play a lot different and a lot harder than you do. And you're going to get some lessons that you wouldn't get at the NCAA level. And I think they better translate to the NBA. I mean, because that's when you're facing grown men. So if you come in a year ready and a year ahead of your competition, ready to play in the league, I think that's massive and can't be understated. I'm really looking forward to it, and I'm rooting so hard. I've never, I don't, I don't even know anything about this kid before I heard him commit. He is now my favorite player, and I want to root for him so hard, just because I want to see him succeed. So people don't go to the NCAA anymore. Yeah, poster boy for the FU NCAA movement. Now, I did want to say that the G League, or the Professional Pathways League, as they're calling it, 
I honestly think as much as we hate the guy and everybody hates the guy, this really was inspired by LeVar Ball because he was talking about putting together a professional league, kind of like a minor league league, that was going to be recruiting these top high school prospects to play there instead of going to college. And I think when the NBA got wind of that, they said, we better kind of you know jump in and snipe this thing. I mean, I absolutely will not give LeVar Ball any credit. I mean, the G League was the D League prior to that, so it's been in existence since LeVar's kids were in middle school. So I don't want to give him any props for that. I mean, I think maybe giving that vision a platform on ESPN's first take and and programs like that, maybe put it into the youngsters' heads more. And they started to say, hey, you know, I don't need to go play for Kentucky and John Calipari and watch this guy get paid. I'm going to go ahead and get myself better, both in the short term and long term. So um, this is an awesome move. Uh, and I figured we can kind of uh, end up the show here. We talk about our FBAS 5 or top 5. We kind of did a top 5. I don't think we planned on it being a quote-unquote FBAS 5. But, yeah, let's call it that just for the heck of it. And we're do- talking about the top 5 NBA players of all time. Again, inspired by The Last Dance, how Michael Jordan, widely considered by many to be the GOAT. I don't know. I kind of like going backwards from 5 to 1. I don't know if you guys like that idea. I'm comfortable with that for sure. My fifth player, and we'll go around the horn if you want, my fifth player that I had, number five all time, is Kobe Bryant. I think that he's not quite in the same echelon as the guys who are going to be in the top four. And I really kind of struggled between whether it was going to be Kobe or Bird or Magic. Those were the three I narrowed it down to. And I just feel like Kobe was a much more skilled and better player than Bird or Magic. And I feel like the five championships, which matches Magic, but he's a better offensive player than Magic, I went with Kobe at five. Kobe is an absolute assassin, like I had mentioned before, probably the closest in basketball form and mindset that we will and have seen to Michael Jordan due to his competitive drive. The fact that he just wants to step on your heart and then slam dunk on you. So not a horrible pick at all in the top five. I think FBAS has had this argument and debate forever and it will continue to happen because statistics change and mindsets change. So Kobe is a wonderful player. I can't hate that pick at all. I'm going to go with one of his teammates actually for my number five and that's Shaquille O'Neal. That's my number five. I think that this guy succeeded on different teams. He was, in my opinion, a Batman during some of that time with Kobe. I think they maybe interchanged those roles. But then I think he went and succeeded in Miami. And this guy was the guy that changed how refing actually happened in the NBA. This guy was a force. I think that center is one of those positions that's pretty interchangeable with some of the legends of the game. But Shaq, to me, is the most dominant figure, and that's why he's my number five. Yeah, you know, this actually was really tough for me because I wasn't sure where I was going to go, and then I kind of decided I was going to put a little time into it and think a little more in-depth, and and I kind of changed my mind here. So I'm actually going to go Magic as my number five player. I just think what he brought to the game when he brought it was something really special and can't be overlooked. You have Kobe over him because you thought he was more talented offensively, and I think you may be right. And as talented as Kobe was defensively, I think Magic might have been better. And just all around, I think Magic was just a better basketball player. He was so smart, just so heady, and did everything so well. He's my number five right there. Number four I have, again, this is a different level, a different echelon, we'll say, which is I have Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He's the NBA's all-time leading scorer. He had, what, 18 all-star appearances or something like that, 15 all-NBA first teams or something ridiculous, just absolutely nuts. Six MVP awards, five championships. I think Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is my number four player. 
an awesome player. The guy is famous for the skyhook and also being in some cinema back then. Um, he was probably one of the first to step into Hollywood during that time, that era, you know, being in, I believe it was Airplane. And then he was also in a movie with Bruce Lee. So uh, an Game amazing player. Yeah, uh, an amazing player. I think that I don't personally put as much stock into the amount of points that he was able to compile over his career. And uh, I think you have to look at Kareem as a, a guy uh, in two different halves, um, what he did with Milwaukee and then what he did in L.A. So an amazing player. This may shock you both, but Kareem actually is not in my top five. I think he's an amazing player. Top 10 can be interchangeable for a lot, but he didn't make my top five. Sully, who's your number four? Who was your number four? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, guys, hot take. Now who's next? (laughs) Hey, guys, hot take. Fuck Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. All right, what's next? (laughs) All right, so uh, I I thought I actually mentioned it. Um, Magic is my number four. This guy came up collegiately and uh, had that rivalry with Larry. But then I think we talk about Michael taking the league from one area and propelling it to another. I think prior to that, we had um, both Magic and Larry, but I think Magic more on the face of the franchise, the face of the league. He had propelled it from kind of caveman status to what it was when Michael took it over and uh, took it to new heights. But Magic is one of the most amazing passers you'll ever see. The guy plays better than you should be able to play at that height and during that time. So played with some amazing teammates, but also against some amazing teams. And I think Magic very deserving of my number four spot. Sully, who's your number four? So number four on my list, I have the same as Wayne. That's where I have Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And, you know, for all the reasons Wayne listed, you know, he's a four-time blockchain, 15-time All-NBA, blah, blah, blah. It goes on forever. You know, he was just so dominant and so skilled. And I think, you know, people kind of really just think he was just so much bigger than everybody. And so he just dominated everybody because he was so much bigger. And that's not true. You know, he was playing against guys his size and he was still dominating them. You know, he played against Wilt a lot and... They actually kind of had these back-and-forth matchups, and we'll get into that later when we both talk about Wilt. But I just think he did his skyhook. He's just so iconic that I just couldn't leave him off of my top five. I'm a big Kareem Abdul-Jabbar fan, and I really love his game. My number three is LeBron James. And it's disappointing to put him at three because I think that this is a guy who should be number one. And I know there's a lot of discussion about whether he is, and I hope I don't really have a lot of conversations with people who put him at one. But he is a tremendous talent. He might be the most talented player ever, especially all-around game and what he does and how he makes his teammates better and the passing and the scoring and the rebounding. And defensively, I know he's kind of, you know, he's old now, but he used to be a really good defender. He should be a one, but he's underachieved, I think, in his career. And so I have him as the third best player of all time. You know, a guy that I have grown to respect more and more now, but I made a living off of hating LeBron. So a guy that you will certainly see in my top five, but not at the number three position. I think LeBron is probably going to go down as the best stat sheet stuffer of all time. But, you know, an amazing player. My number three is a guy that has actually hit a game winner in his eye for the championship, and that is Kevin Durant. I think Kevin Durant is one of the most amazing scorers that I've ever seen. This guy has stepped up his defense over the last couple of years, and it's pretty unfortunate he's had some injuries towards the end of the season. But he changed from uh, being the superstar on one team to uh, a bit more of a, a role player on the Warriors. And Kevin Durant is my number three. I think he's such a fire scorer. What? <laughs> I, 
I, w- I was waiting for my chance to go. But you go ahead. You go ahead, Dan. <laughs> what the fuck? Do, do you have Kevin Durant as your number three player ever? You have Kevin Durant as a better basketball player than Larry Bird. You you think that's true? I do. I don't bleed green, buddy. I think that Larry would probably. I don't either. At, he'd probably sit at six or seven for me. But yeah, I think Durant would run circles around Larry. I think Larry's a great scorer, but Durant has the scoring ability as well as the athletic ability to take you to the rack, dunk over you, D you up. I think he is an amazing player. I think I came into this knowing it was going to shock at least one of you. Glad it shocked both of you. But yeah, this guy's my number three all time. I mean, I'm one of the bigger Durant fans around. He's actually in my top 10 list, and I think that's a hot take. To even have him in the top 10s, I think a hot take. To have him in the top five, I mean, I, I Jesse, I love you. That's just stupid, if you ask me. I don't think what he's done is better than his predecessors. I agree with you. I think he's arguably the most lethal scorer we've ever seen. You know, to be seven foot and to shoot the way he does and do the things he does is so impressive. But, I mean, I don't know. Like, he's one that you try not to knock for not having another guy but he had another guy and couldn't get it done like he had to I don't know I'm just I don't know if I could put him in the top but hey man all for it number three on my all-time list is Wilt Chamberlain when I went into this list and we said we were prepping for the show and this is what we plan on doing I actually had Wilt Chamberlain at five and then I went in and started looking and I don't know a lot of what he does is and a lot of the things I look up are really impressive and kind of just move him ahead of Kareem for me and, and move him ahead of Magic I mean, his minutes per game over a career are 46. That's It's 45.8, but that's insane. The guy averaged 46 minutes a game. You couldn't even, like, come near to that in this day and age. He averaged 23 rebounds a game? Like, what? 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 I, I don't know. His numbers are just in, insane, mind-boggling. He was such a strong, strong player. If there was ever a center who could transition his game in today's game... I think it'd be Wilt Chamberlain just because of how strong he is. I think he'd bully a lot of guys today, and I think he'd push a lot of teams around today, and and I think he'd be the same dominant player. Now, I think Kareem would as well, but I just think if I'm building a big man, I think Wilt's the ideal big man. I think Shaq is probably a little more dominant and things like that, but Wilt was a better rebounder and, and honestly, I think a better defender. So I have Wilt at three. Yeah, Wilt is very deserving of being in the top five. The guy has one of the most iconic photos in NBA history, and that's not even of him on the court. It's of him holding the photo that says 100. That's how many points that guy scored in one game. So he's absolutely iconic. The amount of women he has slayed is even more than that. So an iconic guy, a Laker legend, and an NBA legend. Um, Wayne, I know as a Lakers fan, you have a take on Wilt. I do, and we'll get to it. But before I get to my hot take coming up next, I, I, I cannot believe that you kicked Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, a six-time MVP out of your top five for Kevin Durant. And like Dan said, he had James Harden and Russell Westbrook, two guys who basically average triple doubles now, on his team at the same time, and the three of them couldn't win it. And he went to Golden State, who had just knocked him out of the playoffs, to join a team that went 73-9 and the year before. And so, to me, and I'm, not, and I'm not knocking him for that. I'm all about winning, and I will always debate on FBAS that winning is the most important thing, and I would jump bandwagon to bandwagon to win as many titles as possible. So I'm not knocking him for that. But I am saying that when you're comparing him to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, 
or any of those guys in the top five. It's just absolutely nuts. And the fact that you, people say, oh, he's the most versatile scorer. No, he's not. He's a great shooter. He's seven feet tall and you can't block his shot. But he doesn't take people off the dribble like Carmelo did. Carmelo could score in the post. He could take people off the dribble. He could shoot the three. His mid-range was lethal. I think Carmelo is a much more well-rounded scorer than Durant is. I'm not saying a better player, but a more well-rounded scorer. I'm just blown away that you had Kevin Durant as number three all time. Well, I mean, give me a moment to defend myself here. I mean, you brought up the likes of Russell Westbrook and James Harden and what they're doing now. But what have they done, you know, as far as championships? What have they done as far as playoff runs? I mean, these guys are career losers so far. So do I blame Durant for moving away? No. But, I mean, when you look at the guys that Larry had around him or Kareem had around him when they won their rings, they were stacked with Hall of Famers. Maybe these two will go down as Hall of Famers, but they're arguable Hall of Famers. And again, we're talking about Westbrook and Harden. These guys are playing in an age now where they play into the offensive system. I mean, we're talking about Harden scored, what, 36 points a game in this shortened season, and he's not even in some people's top three for MVP. So I don't think that they're quite comparable. I think that Larry's teammates and Kareem's teammates, much better when you compare them. They're apples to oranges, in my opinion. So... Durant is a, a wonderful scorer and a guy that deserves to be in that spot. Maybe I'm projecting a little bit and what he still has the ability to do, but I think that he deserves to be in that spot, in my opinion. The only thing I can really say is my number two player of all time is Michael Jordan. I think that watching the last dance, obviously we see everything he could do. He's an athletic freak. He was a great competitor. He won six championships. He was an amazing defender. He's first-team all-defense pretty much every year except for the years he was with the Wizards. So, obviously, Michael Jordan is phenomenal. We're getting into the top two now. This is the upper echelon. And really, for me, it's 1-1-A. Jordan gets 1-A, which is essentially two on this list. So, Michael Jordan is my number two all-time player. I'm not shocked at all. You know, I've known you for too long to be shocked by this. But I can't say it's not warranted. Jordan, six and eight years, you know, he won six championships. I personally feel he would have won eight in a row if he didn't step away. That team was designed to continue to win and continue to make a mockery of the rest of the league. I've got this man's Jumpman silhouette tattooed on my arm, so I really don't need to say much more about how I feel about him being in anyone's top three. My number two is LeBron James. This man, as I uh, shitted on him earlier as the, the best stat sheet stuffer of all time, this guy came into the league claimed as the chosen one. You know, he wore the crown, but... The crown was also put on his head, and this guy has done nothing but succeed. I don't like some of the off-court stuff that he's done, mainly the decision, but this gentleman has the most skill that I've ever seen put into one human's body. We've talked about this guy possibly going and being a tight end, you know, in some dream scenarios. Hey, you give this guy a year or two, would he be able to play for the U.S. men's soccer team? So he's an athletic freak. He was built in a factory. And to me, with the resume that he has stacked up so far, as well as what he did this year is the most shocking what he's done in this age in this season with the lakers it puts him number two on my list yeah to start i mean to have michael jordan as your number two i mean i don't know i i don't personally understand it i don't get it i understand the greatness of i'm assuming you have who we'll get to it but i'm assuming you have a certain guy at one and you know, I understand his greatness. We talked about it a little, but I just can't see it over Jordan, like Jesse said, and I know we don't want to play the what-if game, but if Jordan stays, they win eight in a row, and I mean, nobody has this conversation ever, and I think it's a clear lock that Jordan's the greatest of all time, and, and I think it is anyway. I mean, he's just, 
to do what he did for the years he did and the dominance he did. And the big thing is to keep the greats he kept from winning titles. I think that's what separates him the most. To keep the Hall of Famers, Charles Barkley, Carl Malone, John Stockton, Hakeem Olajuwon, Patrick Ewing, these guys from winning titles, these all of them are Hall of Famers and they couldn't win a title because Michael Jordan was in the league. When these other guys were around, they all kind of traded titles and each guy would get their due and things like that. Even today's game, you know, it kind of happens to things like that. Michael came in the league and shut the league the fuck down and won everything and it was always his. And I think that's what truly separates Michael. Now, that's why I have LeBron at number two. I do, again, not to play the what-if game, if LeBron, if this season finished and LeBron would have won this year and next year with the Lakers, i probably move LeBron to number one. But as of right now, I have LeBron number two. And, you know, we've spoken a little bit of this. I know, Wayne, he's your favorite player. Kobe Bryant's my favorite player of all time. I love Kobe Bryant. And I used to despise with a passion, hatred for for LeBron James because they always compared and said, oh, LeBron's better than Kobe and things like that. And for the longest time, I wouldn't accept it. I would say Kobe's better than LeBron. Kobe's better than LeBron. And LeBron just grew every year he's been in the league. And he's become such a well-rounded, versatile, just amazing player. He's got a three-point shot now that's that's viable and good and dependable. You know, he's become a clutch basketball player and win games. Yes, he still has a little shaky now and then on his free throw shooting. But his passing, his court vision, his overall leadership, like you had mentioned earlier, Wayne, his defense is incredible. I just think LeBron has separated himself as, to me, the 1A, 1B of basketball with him and Michael Jordan. So that would be mine. And I think LeBron James does deserve all the credit he gets. And for me, like I said, I think he should be number one. And when I say that, what I mean is when I watch that finals, Cleveland versus Golden State, the first one that Golden State won. LeBron James' final performance in that finals, to me, was better than... the greatest performance ever. Ever. For sure. Ever. Yeah, It's better than anything Jordan did. And I thought, watching that, I said, man, if this guy plays like this for the rest of his career, I mean, he's the best ever. And then he didn't. He just went back to being soft LeBron. Yeah, his big knock is that finals loss to Dallas... That'll haunt him for the rest of his career, will haunt him for the rest of his life. That's something that Jordan would never have let happen and things like that. So I 100% agree with you there. I mean, I maybe it's not right for me to hold this against LeBron. Again, I, mean, again, I have him number two, but the fact that he is such an amazing dunker in-game and, you know, pre-game, it's pretty sad that we never got to see a guy like him perform in the dunk contest. You know, you think back in the history, guys like we've spoken about, Kobe and Jordan and Dr. J, they all took part in these All-Star Game festivities. And for being such a powerful dunker, such a highlight reel dunker, it does kind of suck that we never got to see him do that in, in the biggest stage. And I guess getting to my number one, and, and this was kind of coming, obviously the build-up's been there, and I do have a bunch of stuff I kind of want to go over about it, but my number one player of all time is Wilt Chamberlain. And the reason I do this is because the same reason I have Babe Ruth as the best baseball player of all time is just the sheer dominance. I mean, Babe Ruth hit the equivalent today of 150 home runs in a season. You know, he hit 50 in the second place, had 14. You know, so it just the dominance, you know, Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky, if he didn't score a single goal for his entire career, has more points than any player in NHL history. And he happens to have more goals than anybody in NHL history. So that's the kind of dominance you're getting with Wilt Chamberlain. I mean, you're looking at, you know, most 50-point games. Michael Jordan's number two with 31. Wilt had 118. Most 40-point games. Jordan's number two with 173. 
Wilt had 271. He led the league in assists. Most people don't know that. Uh, Wilt Chamberlain did lead the league in assists. He averaged 48 and a half minutes a game one year in a, in a league where you play 48 minutes a game. He never fouled out of one game his entire career. He went his whole career without fouling out once. And when you look at 30-30 games, that's 30 points, 30 rebounds. The second most all-time is three. That's Bill Russell. Wilt Chamberlain did it 124 times. So to me, just the dominance is what gets him at number one. So I'm going to go ahead and lead off here with the era in which players play in means so, so much to me. And I know that people have attempted to try and defend this, but I'm just never, ever going to buy it. I mean, Dan himself just listed off eight to ten guys, Hall of Famers that we can think of in a split second that Jordan kept from winning championships. Wayne, give me give me even three guys that Wilt kept from winning championships, Hall of Famers from that era. Just to help me understand how the dominance that he displayed in that era wasn't just men amongst boys. Well, Bill Russell is the one that kept everyone from winning championships in that era, and Bill Russell. And he's not in your he's not in your top five, right? He's not in my top fifteen, maybe. Oh wow. Well, so then why do you like? Then that's kind of my point. I mean, not my point, but I think a lot of Wilt's dominance was against inferior competition now it's still i i still give a lot of respect to the things you mentioned to the never fouling out to the playing all the minutes he did um i, I don't see where he led the league in assists i know the one year he had 8.6 i'm assuming that's what you mean i don't see it as the league leading but it may have been i mean regardless he averaged four and a half for his career which is insane for a big man but I don't hate the take, and, and I don't disagree with the dominant side of it. I just, I, again, it's, you know, the same argument I have for Babe Ruth is, well, he didn't play against African Americans, you know, so that's a huge knock on him for me personally. Wayne Gretzky, you can't knock. I mean, he's just the greatest of all time, and there, there ever will be. That's crazy. I think, you know, me and Jesse's number one is both going to be Michael Jordan. I don't think we have to really argue that point. I think it's kind of obvious. You know, the hot take here is obviously Wilt. And the dominant side of it, what, what's impressive to me is the stats you listed, the 30-30, the 50s, the 40s. Those are crazy. The, the second place numbers, those are crazy. But again, you know, through the early 60s, and, you know, I don't know exactly who he's playing. I know through the through the late 60s and, and early 70s, he's playing tougher competition. And, you know, there's actually, you can find video footage of Wilt Chamberlain on successive plays. First, Kareem Abdul goes up with a right-handed skyhook and he blocks it into the corner. And then they get the ball back. Kareem comes back the other side with a left-hand skyhook and Wilt blocks it again. And that's old. That's, you know, 34-year-old. Wilt versus, you know, prime Kareem too. So, you know, you still got to respect it and you think he could have translated it. But I think a lot of his dominance is him beating up on inferior competition. It's true. And, and the thing is, and that's why I tell people that, you know, we talk about him transitioning into today's NBA game. People say, well, how would Wilt do today? I think Wilt would average 28 and 14 today. He would dominate because of his athleticism. People don't realize that Wilt Chamberlain had a 44-inch vertical and he was seven foot one. that he could bench press 450 pounds. Arnold Schwarzenegger used to work out with him and said he was the strongest guy that he ever worked out with, and that's on top of other bodybuilders. He was in college. He was a track star. He ran a 13-second recorded 100-meter dash. I mean, he was just a freak athlete, and that would transition to today's game. 
And yes, he was playing against much less athletic players than him, but I don't want to hold that against him because I feel like Michael Jordan was too. Like I mentioned, Michael Jordan played against Clyde Drexler, who had similar athleticism, and Dominique Wilkins. And other than that, there was nobody in the NBA in Jordan's early years that could match him athletically. So if Jordan were to transition today, he'd still be great, but he'd be playing against guys who are just as athletic as him. And I feel like he benefited from the same things that Wilt Chamberlain did. So we both have Magic and Larry, or all three of us have Magic and Larry within our top 10, we'd say, comfortably within our top 10. I had Magic in my list. And so that's the player that Michael stole the league from. He stole the NBA from both those players who we hold in such high regard. Again, to me, I mean, I'm going to agree, Sully, you said it for us, you know, Jordan's our number one. I mean, the fact that that guy led the league in scoring the same year that he won Defensive Player of the Year, um, you know, you, you, Sully, again, you know, you mentioned he would have won eight in a row. This guy is the reason he's, you know, he's more recognizable as the logo than Jerry West is. So he's a lock for my number one. And I think more of a hot take is I don't have Wilton in my top five. I think he's an athletic freak and certainly transcendent, but not sure that people can keep sending me the height of players he played against. But this guy, like Wayne had just told us, was created in a lab back then. So compared to the other players he was playing in, I mean, he should have been putting up those stats for sure. All right, so I guess that's our top five. I think that anybody who's not listening to us is missing out because I've been listening to a lot of podcasts, a lot of sports podcasts recently, and I can tell you right now, our content is better than anything I hear out there in the podcast world. Yeah, the newcomers to RTF, we feel like we're sitting pretty as far as the content that we're able to put out for all you fans, you know, regarding our preparation, what we do sitting here, just jib-jabbing with each other, and then the final product that Wayne is able to produce with his editing magic. I think that we have one of the number one shows for what we really put into it. I mean, this is our heart and soul, so this is so fun to have this outlet for you fans, FBAS uh, specific, but anybody who's listening to us on RTF, please continue to do so. We can we appreciate your support. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I love our product. You know, I, I obviously stand behind it because, you know, I'm a part of it. I, I like working with you guys. I like, your, you know, your takes. I like that we've got this good back and forth. Uh, and I'm really humbled to be a part of RTF and, you know, this whole experience that they that they've brought us on and you know given us a chance to speak our voice and given us a platform to do so you know i hope everybody signs up you know gets on there listen to us on apple stitcher stream us rate us review us listen to us on the rtf network wednesdays 9 p.m wednesdays 9 p.m rtf network get up on there hey kenny kenny is that you over there man yeah what do you want it's-